Please turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 1. <clears throat> You'll find it comes after Joshua. Get Joshua and turn right. Joshua chapter 1, let's hear the word of God. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated ten thousand of them. At Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem. And there he died. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. This is the word of the Lord. There aren't many books of the Bible that produce a gasp of incredulity when you suggest that you might preach on those books. The book of Judges has already done that, and judging by your faces, is doing it even as I speak. And one of the reasons is that it's probably R-rated contents. The narrative of violence, illicit sex, slaughter, betrayal, and scandal I know that sounds like what you watch on television every night, but there you are. It's here, concentrated in the book of Judges. In fact, you could list the contents of Judges, and uh, by what we watch and see in our screens day by day, we could come to the conclusion, mankind is ever advancing, but man or humans remain ever the same. But here's the thing. The book of Judges is not a, a book for the world outside. It's not a book for our society. It's not a book that addresses the evils of our day in the world around. The book of Judges is actually a book for the church. Its subject is ultimately Jesus. We need to remind ourselves of that. When our Lord Jesus was unfolding to the disciples, the place of Scripture, he told them that the Scriptures speak about him. In John chapter 5, when he's explaining this, he says this, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, that is the Scriptures of the Old Testament, they that bear witness about me. So the first thing we can say absolutely surely from the New Testament is 
that the book of Judges was written to testify about the person and work of Jesus Christ and the great salvation that he has achieved for his people. Now, let's clarify some terms right at the very beginning. First of all, there's the book, and the book is called the Book of Judges, with a capital J. Secondly, there's the Lord, and the Lord is the judge, capital uppercase J. Jesus told us, God the Father judges no one and has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. The judge behind the book of Judges is none other than Jesus Christ, the Lord. Third, there is the cast. The cast are the judges with lowercase j. In fact, the commission or mission of these judges was to act as saviors. That word Savior will come up again and again in the book as we unpack it going forward. They were sent to save, rescue, deliver Israel, the church, from her enemies. We will see that there's a cycle within the book of Judges, a cycle of disbelief, disobedience, decline, followed by an outcry from the people of for mercy from God, and then God's response in sending judges to save them. And this repetitive cycle is there to remind us of the need for a Savior and is setting the scene for us for the coming of the final judge and Savior. In fact, when Isaiah in his prophecy is talking about the coming of Jesus Christ, He puts it like this, when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. So when he's talking about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, the savior, Isaiah the prophet resorts to the language of the judges in order to describe him. When they cry out to the Lord, He will send them a Savior and a Defender, meaning the Savior, Jesus. The final judge, however, will be the Savior not only of Israel, but of the Israel of God, that is, the Church of God, which is global and not local. Now, the period of the judges... uh, spans a period of time between the death of Joshua, who was uh, a sidekick to Moses, and the ministry of Samuel, who's responsible for establishing the monarchy in Israel. If you're interested in the book of Samuel, there's sermons on the website from First and Second Samuel that kind of pick up the story there. And that period, running roughly from 360 B.C. to 1084 B.C., was one of the darkest periods in the story of Israel as a church, a period of disobedience, of sin and idolatry and apostasy, and yet at the same, very same time, a period where we see the intervention of the God who saves. Now, I'm going to be taking a very positive view of this book as we go through, and 
my approach to the book is influenced by the way in which the book is referred to in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, for example, at the end of that chapter, there is a reference to the, to the book of Judges, to the judges themselves, and to the work that the judges accomplished. Let me read it to you. The writer says this in chapter 11, which is his great uh, hall of faith. And what more can I say, he says, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, those are judges, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, the judges, enforced judgment, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong, like Samson, out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. The writer goes on to say, these, these judges that I just mentioned, who did these things that I've just described, were commended through their faith and are now part of that great cloud of witnesses that call us, believers, to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, of course, I need need to make a point of clarification here. I've called Israel a church, and a church it was. The word church originated in its usage in the Greek in reference to the assemblies of Israel. Uh, But the church of Israel in the Old Testament is not like the church today in this respect, that Israel was a nation-state as well as a church, a nation-state with a human form of government. And one of the issues in the book of Judges is that Israel at this point did not have a proper form of government. In fact, repeatedly we're told these words, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. No, no order, no law, no order. So when we talk about the book of Judges, we're not thinking that there is a straight line from the Israel that's described there to the democracies or the churches of today. But insofar as Israel was a church, it is a warning and a lesson to the church today. Uh, We, as we're studying it, we may see parallels between the sins of Israel then and the sins of our secular society today. But it would be wrong for us to equate what happens in Israel and what happens in secular society. Rather, the equation we should make, according to the Holy Spirit, is to look at Israel and to equate her story here with that of the church today. That's the principal thing that's taken out. She was a church as well as a nation state. The comparison to us today is this. We can't call America an equivalent to Israel, which was a theocracy. America is a, is a republic. 
and is a secular republic, even though it's a nation built under God and it's in God we trust. Nonetheless, in spite of that, the reality is that it is a secular nation. No, when we look at Israel in the Old Testament, we must equate it to the church today and see its application for us. And the story of Judges is that judgment must begin in the house of God. For if the righteous scarcely are saved, where will the unrighteous and the ungodly appear? So the people of Israel then failed to do what God commanded. They failed to be the instruments of God's work among the peoples of the land of their day. Because they failed to do that, the people of the land became a snare to them. God's people fell away from God, the worship of God, began to worship the Baals, the false gods of the nations. And that's the story of chapters 1 and 2. Now, chapter 1 and 2 give us the historical and theological context. In fact, you could describe the outline of the book of Judges as a sandwich with two slices of bread, one pumpernickel, one sourdough, pumpernickel, sourdough, and then at the end, sourdough, pumpernickel. Uh, Because uh, what you find is that in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, you have the, the introduction. The last chapters, you have the conclusion. There are two introductions, two conclusions that sandwich the story together. And then in the middle, there are, there are major judges like Samson and three minor judge, judges who just get a very passing mention. Okay, we've got to come to chapter 1. And it begins with these words, after the death of Joshua. Those opening words act as a kind of timestamp, but also as a link statement showing us the unity and order of Scripture, telling us right from the very onset that there is a significant leadership deficit in the church that was Israel of that day. While Joshua was alive, the people depended on Joshua telling them what to do. He was their leader. He had been with Moses. They knew he was an outstanding person, They could trust his judgment. But now he's gone. Where will we go? And here at the beginning of the chapter, you find them inquiring of the Lord. That meant they had to go and fight the high priest. The high priest used the the human and thumbin to to determine what the will of God was. They they came to him and they asked him the question, who's going to go, go up first? Who's going to be the leader? When we charge out of here, to fulfill what God has asked us to do or called on us to do. Who's going to lead us? We don't have Joshua anymore. Who's going to be the leader when we go into battle? Uh, And so on. And they're thinking together about the mission that God had charged them with. Their mission was to do two things. To dispossess the land of Canaan of its inhabitants and possess the land of Canaan for themselves. Now, that sounds very bad in our hearing today. We think of that, and we think of ethnic cleansing. We think of what's happening in Ukraine today and in other parts of the world. 
And our reaction would be, well, to be negative, even at the very thought of it. In fact, Ralph Davis, a southern Presbyterian preacher, says with his tongue firmly in cheek, if only the Canaanites could know how much emotional support they receive from modern Western leaders. And that's true, of course. Now, without minimizing the horrors of warfare, either then or now, we have to ask ourselves what the divine reason was for such an action. The background is Deuteronomy chapter 9. Let me just pick out little, three little aspects of what God says there in Deuteronomy chapter 9. First of all, the task. Listen to the task. Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in and dispossess nations greater and mightier than you are. Great cities with fortifications up to the heavens. Number one, the task. Number two, the assurance. Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. This is an act of God and an act of God's judgment. Our God is a consuming fire. Number three, there's a qualification. God goes on, Do not say in your heart, Because my, of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in uh, to possess this land. God says to them, Don't think it's because you're better than they are. No, it's because of their great wickedness that the Lord is dispossessing them. Nothing to do with you. You don't deserve it. There's nothing that you've done that gives you a kind of edge over these people. In fact, God goes on to say he's doing it to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he goes on to press this home to, to the Israelites. He says, you know, you're a stubborn people. I'm not doing it for you because you're great. You're a stubborn people. You've provoked the Lord. This is in Deuteronomy 9. You've been rebellious against the Lord. In fact, the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you if he hadn't made promises to Abraham. In other words, Israel is not setting about this task of dispossessing the lands because of a sense of its own manifest destiny. It's doing it because it was the duty that God had laid upon them. And they were to wipe them out. Why, why wipe them out? Because the Canaanites were terribly wicked. And that death is the wage of sin. It's a wage of sin for everybody. Don't be worried about the fact that God was wiping out these tribes in Canaan back then because of their wickedness. He's wiping out every human being that's born into the world today. The wage of sin is death. We don't take it seriously. But that's the reality. Whether we're high or low, rich or poor, a queen 
has just died. The wages of sin is death, whoever and whatever we are. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we find out why God has called Israel to do this. He refers to the detestable things of those nations. He talks about the way they make their children, their little ones, their sons and their daughters, pass through the fire. That is, they use their little children. Think of them. The little ones sitting down here at the front. The ones who are in the nursery and were in Bible school earlier on today. Using children, using them as sacrifices to their gods regularly as part of the regular worship throwing them into the fire on the altar. Can you imagine it? It's inconceivable. That's what they were doing. Can you even get a little bit of a hint? Even though we're sinful and we're not holy like God is, but can you get even a little bit of a hint of why God might want that to stop? These customs, divination, witchcraft, interpreting omens, sorcery, engaging with black magic, the powers of darkness, they were into these things. And what God was calling Israel to be was only an instrument. This is, they're just an instrument. They're not doing this because they're mad at these people, they hate these people, they're angry with these people. They're doing this because God's using them as an instrument to deliver the wage of sin to these people for their corrupt, perverted practices. The Bible doesn't say these are nice things. But it does say that they were just things. If for a moment we feel that such violence is unacceptable, we should reflect on the fact that our society considers perfectly acceptable to kill babies in the safe place of their mother's womb, to put the elderly at risk, as happened in various places during the pandemic globally, promoting euthanasia as a policy, encouraging uh, pedophilia and wanting to make it legal. And our appetite for every kind of violence and every kind of sexual deviation imaginable by way of entertainment. That's the kind of society we live in. God orders these people to be eradicated because of the influence of their sin on other nations, including the nation of Israel. Now, with that background, then, we just come to look at the first few verses. This will be very quick, I promise. There's a good start here. Israel inquired of the Lord. They didn't have the privilege you and I have of coming straight to the throne of grace and finding help in time of need. They had to go to the high priest. The high priest had to use a Urim Thummim, a method in use still in the time of Jesus. It was believed that God controlled the device and made his will known by means of it. Proverbs 16 describes it. The lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is holy from the Lord. By means of that, they sought God's will. 
We don't need to do that today. We have, as Richard Rogers, the Puritan Presbyterian who died in 1618, said, We have Moses, we have the prophets and the apostles and the ministers of God and pastors and teachers to bring us God's message and mind out of his word and therefore instruct us. They inquired of the Lord. That's always a good thing when God's people do that. Secondly, Judah was called to to go up first. Judah. Judah, who is always reckoned along with Simeon, who's mentioned here. Uh, Peter Martyr Vermily, who uh, died in 1562, describes why it is that uh, it's Judah that's used to go up first as the leader of Israel. First, because Judah is the largest of the tribes. Second, because Judah is the one that's identified as being the royal tribe from Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he, that is the Messiah, comes to whom it belongs. Thirdly, Judah was the first of the tribes to pass through the Red Sea. They didn't wait to be told, they went on. Thirdly, Judah was the most blessed of the tribes because the Messiah, the final Savior, would come from their tribe. Revelation 5, Jesus comes fresh from the cross to the throne of God, the line of the tribe of Judah, and he's called the line of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain. In other words, the, primar, the, primar, the prior, priority of Judah here is because the Messiah would be given not just to the Jews, but through the Jews for all the world. Salvation is of the Jews. So in order to complete this task, then the enemy must be driven out of the land. And at the beginning of this chapter, we have a factual account of a military action. Uh, Joshua had done a great job. We're told in Joshua chapter 11 that all the land was taken, all the kings were defeated. But in spite of all those successes, when Joshua died, we find that the Canaanites were re-engaging and re-emerging as they did all the time. You chop them down, they come back again. It's like the weeds in our garden. They push them away. Well, Christine gets rid of them. And then they're back, they come. And it's just being honest. Uh, again, as bad as, as ever. And Jesus, you know, when he was talking to his disciples in Matthew and Mark and Luke, calling them a church, he calls on the church to assault the gates of hell. In other words, the work of the church is a battle. He promises them that the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the confessing church. Under the gospel, we are assured that every one of us is enlisted in the battle. Nobody can be converted to Christ or enter his service without becoming his soldier. Put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Or in 2 Timothy, share the suffering in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is a life of battle. We are, we are in a win-it-or-lose-it battle with sin, indwelling sin, the world system, the powers of darkness. 
We have to be alert, awake. There is no picture, I'm afraid, in the Bible of the church or the Christian lounging around on his couch. Although I have to say there was a period in the life of our church where I had to imagine that, to imagine you, because the place was empty. And I knew what you were doing. I knew you were in your PJs with your coffee on your couch, lounging around watching your television. And I had my pajamas, trousers. No, my pajamas. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But you know, that's not a picture of the Christian life. The battlefield is the picture of the Christian life. In the battle for God and for right is an old hymn, and I think it reappears in one of Mark Twain's books. I think it's Huckleberry Finn, but I'm not going to the stake for that because I just thought of it just now. Shall I be carried to the sky in cloudy beds of ease while others fought to win the prize? and sail through troubled seas. Now, as we close the chapter, there's this guy that I want to draw your attention to just very quickly. Adonai Bezek. Bezek, the place, is northwest of the Jordan Valley, quite far away from the territory that was Judah's, promised to Judah, given to Judah by God. Adonai Bezek's name means Lord, Lord of Bezek, the place. And this man had a big opinion of himself. He kind of regarded himself as a king of the world. He had overcome and defeated and conquered 70 kings, he tells us. And Adonai Bezek has something to teach us about justice. Look at what he says. 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Now, we have a lesson there about what this whole process of dispossessing the land and possessing it involved, justice is involved. What they have done to others is going to be done to them. And it's this great king we see in verse 7 who was taken to Jerusalem. He died there. And verse 8 tells us, on account of his death, they were able to capture the city. Now, here's what I want you to imagine. In New Israel, that is the church today, Our inheritance is not a geographical piece of land, nor is it earthly Jerusalem, nor is it a Christianized world. Can't believe that that old notion, which comes up from time to time in the history of the church, has resurrected itself among some people today, but it has. It's come back again. Wishful thinking. It is New Jerusalem that is at the heart of the new heavens and the new earth. And to possess that city, as we must, we have to be united to Jesus, the Savior of the world, the true King of Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, 
the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He too, like Adoni Bezek, was killed in Jerusalem. But here's the thing. Read this guy's words again. What was it he said? As I have done, so God has repaid me. Jesus died at Jerusalem. And we can say now as Christians, the same words as Adonai Bezek said, as we have done, namely our sins, so God has repaid him. As we have done, so God has repaid him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And by his stripes, we are healed. That's the heart of the gospel. One dies in Jerusalem because he was getting justice for what he'd done. Another died in Jerusalem who was sinless. And for what we had done, he suffered in order to provide us with salvation. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would cause this good news to be ours. As we think of the words of Hebrews, therefore Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called to receive the promised inheritance, the eternal inheritance, new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In other words, Jesus, by his death, that death enables us to receive the inheritance. We pray, Lord, that we live as those who are happy to know that Christ has done it all, and we simply receive it by his grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.